Hello, and welcome to the Steps Podcast with me, Boone Christensen. This first episode will be a kickoff of a read-through through the Steps booklet, which I began publicizing a few months back. Along with the text, I'll also be adding some extra examples and some more in-depth explanations. One of the most common questions I get as a therapist is, how can I help my friends and loved ones with mental illness? This booklet is a comprehensive answer to that question, but it's also a model for boundaries, parenting, romantic relationships, and pretty much any other kind of human interaction. It will also give some specific education about certain kinds of mental illness. Key to understanding the model will be the diagrams that accompany the text, which I've linked in the description. All right, we're ready to get started here. I hope you enjoy it. Introduction. Communication is the number one reported problem in family therapy. The funny thing is, communication is almost never the problem. Words and skills are good to know, but they do nothing when not used appropriately. Using I statements does nothing when your partner is shutting down. Asking about needs is offensive when your child is brimming with anger. An apology has the opposite effect when laced with defensiveness. Feelings matter, not just skills. The following is a model of effective communication, but more than that, it's a model of being, helping, feeling, perceiving, explaining human behavior, and even treating mental illness. Though it isn't exact brain science, it does use true principles of brain and evolutionary science to help us navigate relationships, mental health, and our own survival. This is the STEPS model. Basic Brain Development To start, let's look at the wonderful brain. Brains can do amazing things. They can create, compute, recall, and react. They can act both deliberately and unconsciously, mostly unconsciously. It'd be pretty exhausting if we had to deliberately command our lungs to breathe or our heart to beat, our stomach to secrete acid. You get the idea. The brain develops from the bottom up in order of necessity. In the lower brain, we have basic life functions, heart and lungs. We share these functions with even the most basic life forms in the animal kingdom, like worms. In the most intense survival situations for higher order organisms like us, when energy is limited, it'll be diverted to those basic parts, leaving everything else out. States of dissociation, depression, losing consciousness, leave only these parts online, our heart and lungs. They indicate overwhelming or inescapable stress. The next level up in the middle brain includes some more sophisticated wiring, stuff that allows not just for living, but for feeling. These functions allow us to react to the world around us, to keep us safe, to help us know what feels good and what doesn't. We share this section, often referred to as the lizard brain, with higher-ordered creatures, things with legs and backbones, things that run, hide, fight. Fear, anger, or disgust are induced by things perceived as escapable threats, things that won't kill you if you can do something about it. When these states are activated, the lowest part of the brain, the heart and lungs, is at its most active, the senses are sharpened, and other functions that are not essential for short-term survival are turned down. Logic, long-term reasoning, empathy, non-urgent tasks. The brain retains some logic in the state that can serve survival purposes, such as that just make it through the day, feeling, lying, faking it till you make it, best ways to break the rules, clever ways to acquire drugs, etc. The upper brain is unique to mammals. Its purpose is to drive meaningful, long-term living and relationships, which most reptiles don't care about. Its functions are problem-solving, logical reasoning, empathizing, long-term planning, and abstract learning. Dolphins, elephants, and primates have these skills to some degree, but humans have the thickest outer cortex, the thickest top part of the brain, relative to other mammals, allowing for significantly greater human-like functioning. 
because these functions are not as important to short-term survival as those in the lower levels, they are most accessible when the environment is calm and stress is low. All of these parts exist for important reasons, and good health requires that they all function adaptively according to the surrounding environment. Most mental illness arises when some part of the brain is used disproportionately to relative need. Stress tells the brain to reduce energy in that upper level where all of our logical reasoning happens. So someone spending more time in the fight or flight or middle part of the brain, perhaps with an anxiety disorder, has enough stress buildup to keep them in that state. Someone spending significant time in the lowest level, perhaps with a depressive disorder, is flooded by the stress buildup and perceives their stressors as inescapable. These conditions are directly proportional to the perceived amount and kind of stress present in the person's life. This includes unprocessed past stresses or trauma. Unless there are direct physical damages or abnormalities in the brain, as seen in birth defects, concussions, strokes, surgery, or chemical exposure, we can attribute much of the mental illness to environmental factors. More severe mental illness, such as bipolar, personality disorders, or schizophrenia, can also be seen as adaptations to real environmental stressors. But we'll talk more about those later toward the end of the booklet, perhaps in a couple episodes. If symptoms are a result of stress buildup and the brain is reacting to its environment, then a change in the environment will lead to changes in the brain. This is why I see cases where a child may qualify for a diagnosis of anxiety or depression or even ADHD while living with one parent in a separated parent situation, but not with another parent. Changes in environment can have drastic, almost instantaneous effects on people. This is where the steps come in. Brains, like the rest of our body, have the incredible innate ability to heal themselves, to drive functioning toward the upper brain. We want to heal, and we will heal if we're allowed to uninterrupted, and if the environment helps us feel safe enough to do so, kind of like a hospital, um, you know, for physical injuries and things like that. Knowing the steps makes this process easier. Interacting with someone in a helpful way can be somewhat complicated, especially if you start by looking at the complete model, um, more toward the middle of the booklet that has 10 steps. But this guide will steadily work up to the complete model by introducing basic principles a little at a time. The point is to use the principles of brain science to interact with by matching the individual's need, not to use a script. Each person is different, but our brains all developed in the same order. The suggestions I give match common scenarios, but ultimately you will be in charge of determining what works best for you and the people you help in various brain states. We'll start by using the three-step model. Three-step model. The three sections of the brain we already know give us some basic principles of how to interact. Knowing what we know about each part, the general kinds of interactions appropriate to each are almost intuitive. So, in the lower brain, our freeze mode, where only our heart and lungs are functioning at you know, normal levels, these people, likely in a depressed state, are using their basic survival functions. We should steer away from any kind of logical or emotional stimulation. In your freeze brain, you can't learn anything. You can't take in new information, think clearly, you can't identify and talk about your feelings because you don't have a lot of access to those parts of your brain. You're just breathing. You need a safe presence, not necessarily someone to talk to, and definitely not someone to give you advice or suggestions. Needless to say, criticism or other verbal violence will likely drive these people in freeze state deeper into freeze, or briefly into fight mode, and then back into freeze. For those in the middle brain, you know, the anxious fight-or-flight part of the brain, 
You can tell these people are in fight or flight due to their body language, voice tone, or lack of logical reasoning. Some of them will present as calm but lack logical reasoning or use passive aggression. They're in a mode to detect threats and are primed to interpret anything, even attempts to help, as threats. Requests, non-urgent tasks, facts, reason, and offers of help are all seen as threats, and silence or space, the needs of the lower brain, are seen as abandonment. The middle brain is trying to prove that the environment is safe, and it does so by detecting avenues of escape, of escape, either emotional or physical, or by aggressively probing to see if anything will show signs of aggressing back. This is why someone might deliberately try to annoy or aggravate you. They're trying to prove a sense of safety. If escape appears optional and no one is aggressing back, the brain will progress toward a calm, logical state. Interactions with someone in fight or flight involve active attention, gentle questions about feelings and experience, and validation of those feelings, but not necessarily agreement. This can backfire if it's given prematurely or insincerely. The upper brain, where logic and learning connection happens, people in this state show signs of safety in their body language. Their muscles and posture are relaxed. They're breathing slowly. There's no urgency in their voice and their content makes logical sense. This person is ready to gain new information, to take requests or directives, receive a challenge to their perspective, and act according to their knowledge, which people in the lower two parts of the brain cannot do. They cannot act according to their logic because they don't have access to that logic. Again, if someone is acting calm, but their speech makes no sense, their body is tense, they might be hiding their actual emotional state. And humans have definitely have a tendency to hide what they're actually feeling. So the diagram we're looking at, it has three steps on it. Um, the, at the bottom, and the brain divided into three basic parts, the freeze, fight or flight, or the logic part at the top. The freeze part corresponds to the step, give space meaning keep stimulation low, uh, don't try and make anything happen. This organism or this person you know, just needs to breathe. In the fight or flight or fight or flight part of the brain corresponds with the listen or validate step. Okay? In fight or flight, the emotions need to come out without being challenged. Okay? That's why we listen and then when we hear those feelings, we help the person understand that we care about those feelings that those feelings are understandable, that we don't think this person is crazy for having these feelings. Uh, Maybe that's the case, but sending that message will definitely shut the conversation down. And then the top part of the brain, logic, corresponds with teaching, because that's the only part of the brain that can really internalize logical reasoning. So, do your best to determine the general brain state and act accordingly. Should you give space, either physical or verbal? Should you listen and validate? Or should you try to make plans and find solutions? The universal greeting, how are you, actually does a lot to guide a conversation if asked sincerely and in a neutral tone, not like in an expectant tone, like you want somebody to say that they're feeling good or that they're doing well. When in doubt, try listening first and move from there. But remember to not just take them at their word. Read all the cues, body language, tone, content. 
More specific information later in this article will help in discerning brain states. But before we move on, it would be a good time to discuss the importance of boundaries and self-awareness in your efforts to help someone regulate their emotional state. Virtually all people have the brain parts as described above, meaning they also have freeze and fight-or-flight functions that will activate under certain conditions. This includes you. All the knowledge you have about communication skills will do no good when your stress has brought you to fight-or-flight levels when you become more likely to do harm than good. To avoid this, you can work on your own emotional responses in a couple ways. One is mindfulness. This is the process of getting to know your own thoughts, emotions, and body responses. Learning to recognize what happens in your various emotional states is inherently regulating. It helps us us feel better. It increases your compassion for others and will help you make informed decisions about boundaries and modifications to your emotional responses. Number two is boundaries. If the person you're trying to help is triggering your fight or flight or freeze response with their emotions or behaviors, you need to help yourself feel safe first, as you are no use to them when you are in a triggered emotional state. Boundaries consist of if-then statements. For example, if this happens, this is what I will do, which is a common misconception that people have that boundaries are something you expect other people to do. Effective boundaries involve taking protective actions to keep yourself safe. They're not expectations set for others, meaning not, if this happens, this is what I will make slash expect you to do, right? That is not what we're trying to do. With older children and adults, the protective action may mean you leaving the room or the house and taking time to breathe. But with small children, it may mean placing them in a safe timeout space where they can have their emotions without causing too much damage to property, people, or themselves. Ideally, you would stay in the room with the person you're helping to mitigate abandonment stress. But if you have the choice between making someone feel abandoned or attacked, choose the former. Attacking is only an appropriate boundary if you are in a war zone, which you don't want your home to be. If you cannot keep yourself safe without putting other people or property physically at risk, then this person's emotional responses may need to be contained by appropriate law enforcement or medical personnel. Meaning if this person's anger response is to like physically harm you or destroy the car or smash dishes or something like that, then you may not have the resources to put effective boundaries on this person and might need to ask for help. Another part of boundaries is recognizing the limits of your therapeutic skill. Certain kinds of anxiety, like OCD, or those with strong delusions, such as in personality disorders or schizophrenia, require more time, specific skills, and strong emotional regulation of the helper to go through the steps. You need to be psychologically very strong to help these people through this same process. You can't just listen and validate to get the people with these conditions to a logical spot. You may go around in circles for hours, making no progress. Please disengage as gracefully as you can from the conversation when you realize this is happening, that you're going in circles, and ask for further help from a qualified clinician. Again, we will talk about those kind of conditions more in the last section of the booklet. Number three, work on your individual stress. Take a look at the article Brain in the Bucket in the blog to learn about sources of stress and how to treat them. You can increase your coping skills to reduce temporary stress, make changes to your environment, or work on your trauma, all of which can increase your capacity to interact in a helpful way. The most direct route would be to use the emotions you feel while interacting with the person you're helping and tracking the old sources of the emotional response. For example, if you're talking with your child and you were just feeling outraged, like you want to say mean, aggressive, or judgmental words, 
analyze, whoa, what is it about this conversation that is making me feel that way? Um, do you find that you're taking responsibility for this person's feelings or actions, which is always inappropriate because other people are not responsible for the feelings or actions of others? Are you feeling that it is your job to change this person? Does a specific behavior or emotional state of theirs trigger strong emotions in you? Do you see part of yourself in this person? Do you believe in withholding judgment but find yourself judging this person? If so, you have to. We have work to do on yourself that will improve your ability to be helpful. We'll discuss some of the specific specifics of boundaries a bit later, but for now, we can discuss the next level of complex of complexity of the steps in the six-step model. The six-step model. This diagram differentiates between listening and validating and gives the order of approaches entering after entering the logical brain. So we're looking at the six steps that are on here, which are give space, reflective listening, validate, self-help, offer help, and teach slash challenge. Again, these diagrams are linked um, in the description of the podcast. <clears throat> so what does it mean to listen? Listening is a neutral stimulus for the emotional brain. You'll rarely make someone feel more upset just by listening to them. In this step, you are trying to gather information that will help you accurately validate a feeling. You do this by asking questions, mostly open-ended ones, not yes or no questions or specific answer ones, such as, tell me about that, or what happened then? How did you feel about that? You're helping this person convey their experience, not trying to pry out specific factual details, point out inconsistencies or illogical components, or trying to get the person to learn something through your questioning. Not yet. That We can do that later on. You can clarify understanding and show the person you are listening by reflecting back what you are hearing. But again, be careful not to try and teach with your reflection, with what you're understanding of their feelings. The next step is validating. Once you've listened sufficiently, often indicated by the person being done talking, it may be safe to validate feelings. Statements like, that's so hard, or I can't imagine what this must be like. I'm so sorry this is happening. I can understand how you feel this way. You've shown that you care by listening, then show that you considered the person's experience valid. If you can't sincerely validate the feelings, don't try. Your lack of sincerity will likely hurt worse than saying nothing at all. Find out what inside you is making it hard to validate these feelings. All emotions and perspectives are valid, which isn't the same as true, mind you. Even instrumental emotions, the ones that people might use to manipulate or get a certain kind of way, should be validated, as the need to manipulate, even the need to manipulate, I should say, comes from a deep unmet need right? That can only be uncovered if validation and boundaries occur together. Apologizing and repairing also are in this category of validation, wherein your role is to validate the pain this person is feeling and show you recognize your part in it, even if you don't think you did anything wrong. The thing is, this person sees you as a threat. They see that you have hurt them. And for you to say, I didn't hurt you, like can only be perceived as another threat. Okay, you're denying the fact that you hurt me, which makes you even less safe. It is okay to say, 
I'm sorry, I hurt you, because you did. Whether you wanted to or not, whether you did anything wrong or not, um, whether you remotely recall what this person is talking about, it's okay to recognize, yes, I see that I am a threat, I see that I have caused pain, even if I, you know, technically haven't done anything wrong. It's okay to say that, and that's a sincere statement. You are sorry that you've caused this person pain, right? Repairs can help them feel safe enough to either go deeper into the feelings, back to listening, or be ready to discuss solutions up to that self-help step. However, you must be careful not to skip to validation prematurely. If you validate a feeling that does not match what this person feels, you risk making them feel less safe with you, actually. You demonstrate a lack of understanding of this person's experience and may convey that you are not interested in understanding. The same goes for apologize. For, for apologies, excuse me. If you apologize without understanding what this person feels hurt about, you risk adding something else to apologize about later. Some examples of misplaced validation. Person number one, my uncle just passed away. Person number two, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry for your loss. That must be so devastating. I can't imagine how painful that is for you. Person one, actually, I suffered, I suffered horrific sexual abuse from my uncle and feel a lot of relief now. Person number two, um, oh, you can tell this conversation likely won't last much longer because person number two, like, started expressing, you know, condolences for a person who wasn't feeling sad. Um, they conveyed that they didn't, like, they drew an assumption. They didn't actually understand what this person was feeling. And so we're validating inappropriately. Example number two, a parent that says, I see you're so upset. Again, I'm so sorry I was late to pick you up today. The child. That doesn't mean anything to me. This keeps happening and you keep not doing anything about your phone addiction that keeps you from paying attention to the time and what's happening in my life. This child's pain isn't from this particular late pickup from soccer practice. It's the aggravation of a string of injuries stemming from the parent's habitual behaviors. The parent's apology just adds fuel to the fire because this parent hasn't expressed an accurate understanding of the pain. This parent doesn't know like the, the nature, the depth of the emotion that their child is feeling, and so they can't effectively apologize for what they don't know. Last example, a child that says, I'm just ugly and stupid and everyone hates me. A parent that says, that sounds really hard. <clears throat> you don't know anything. Child storms out. This child is showing signs of being in the lower part of fight or flight brain, where emotions are happening but are being expressed in the least logical way. Even if that parent was sincere in their validating statement, this child likely needed to be listened to more before being able to receive validating statements. A statement like, oh, tell me about that, might keep that child talking. The next steps I explain are in the logic section of the brain, the upper brain. Though a person may be out of fight or flight and ready for logic, they may not be ready for it to come from you. There's still a process to follow to give us the best chance of a successful interaction. So, the self-help step. This person has expressed their emotions and feels sufficiently understood and validated to make decisions, but maybe not receive new information from an outside source. They could use some time to think things over, then either come up with their own solutions or be ready to receive help. A simple way to help is by asking, what do you think? What are your ideas? And again, this is after you've listened to and validated all the feelings. If you try and you know, ask 
about solutions too early, this person might feel offended that you are trying to fix the problem. More often than not, if someone is allowed to move through this stage naturally, they won't need any outside fixes or advice, especially for problems with seemingly obvious solutions. People are smart once they get out of their reptile brain. Um, I often tell people that therapy sessions often don't involve any advice or instruction at all. All I had to do was listen and validate their feelings, then the person entered their own logical brain on their own, and thus like thought of their own solutions. They leave my office happy, feeling like they gained something from it, when really I just let their emotions flow, whereas other people haven't allowed them to. The next step above self-help is for you to offer help. In this step, you take measures to prevent unsolicited advice, which is a most untherapeutic interaction. Um, Offering help can be done by asking, would you like some help or some ideas? And listening to the person's response. If they say no, don't give advice. If they say yes and look like they mean it, do give advice. Easy, right? Not actually for most people. But if you have the green light, be careful not to bombard this person with ideas. Deliver them one at a time for the person to digest. Also be careful about trying to teach overarching principles or life lessons, since these will be best received after plans have been made or you've reached a calm stalemate in the conversation. Be wary of offering help when someone is in the lower stages. In freeze, they may refuse because they can't even think of the kind of help that they want. In fight or flight, they may say no because they're afraid of asking for the help they think they need. They don't want to be a burden, or they don't feel safe enough to receive help from you. Don't blame someone for not taking help when you've offered. It may not have been the best time to offer. Also, be wary of people who are acting like they want advice, but are arguing with it, or it doesn't help them feel any better. These are signs that this person is really in a fight or flight state and should be treated as such. Again, even if they're pretending otherwise. Folks with OCD will often portray this kind of behavior, where they will ask you for advice, they really want the answer to the question, but it either just leads to another question or to disagreeing with that advice. The teach or challenge stage. These two terms encompass many kinds of interactions, all of which involve asking the person you're helping to use a little extra energy. Teaching involves any delivery of new information. This could be stating facts, asking reflective questions, expressing your own, um, expressing your own perspective or feelings, giving a demonstration, or even giving reassurance or encouragement. There's a blog post called "Against Against Reassurance" for more about that. It takes energy to learn something cognitive, such as new skills or information, and it has to be energy to spare. Someone only has extra energy when they aren't in fight or flight or freeze mode, essentially if they're not anxious or depressed. Many parents get upset when they hear that teaching is best received when children are in a calm, safe state. They interpret this to mean, so I'm never allowed to teach my kid? They're always anxious. I can understand this frustration, and I'm not forbidding parents from doing anything. I'm just letting them know that if they try to push learning into the part of the brain that can't learn, they may slow their child's emotional recovery. And if a lesson does sink in, it will only happen when the child reaches a calm, logical state anyway. So I recommend going for the more efficient route of teaching after the emotional work is done. Many also fear that they'll never be able to share their feelings with the person they're helping. 
this is a valid fear. It may take a long time and effort to help this person enter a state where they can listen to your feelings without those feelings causing damage. Telling someone your feelings, wants, expectations while they're in a fight, flight, or freeze state will likely induce shame in them, making them feel responsible for your feelings. It will make it harder for them to express feelings to you later because they're afraid of upsetting you. It is most effective to share your feelings with another adult when that adult is in their upper brain. It should be done only very carefully with children and never as a consequence of undesired behavior as kids are especially prone to taking responsibility for adults' emotions, meaning that you don't punish your child by telling them how what they did hurt your feelings because that makes children responsible for your feelings. Um, you can see some other posts about effective parenting boundaries for these kind of things on the blog. Challenging is providing resistance to something or giving encouragement or directives to do something. Saying, I think you should travel for the team, call a friend, enter a contest, see a therapist, is a form of challenging. Stating your disagreement is a form of teaching, then starting a debate is a form of challenging. Requesting or commanding are challenges. Pointing out inconsistencies in thinking, action, and emotion are challenges. Informing of the existence of a boundary is teaching, and actually enforcing the boundary is a challenge. The complete steps model includes a step about boundaries, which we'll discuss in depth a little bit more later. Again, many parents contend, so I should never ask my kid to do their chores or homework? No, I think chores and homework are fair expectations, but these requests should come after you've discerned your child's emotional state and help them through any homework-impeding emotions first. Determine which is more important, your child's emotional health or them getting the task done ASAP. Most people tend to give solutions, teach, or challenge while someone is in an emotional state or otherwise not in a place to receive logic. This amplifies survival emotions. Unless repairs or resolution are made about these interactions, they become trauma and contribute to mental illness and relationship problems. This pattern of interaction often comes from a form of anxiety, a fear of the helped person's emotions. That's why we feel the need to give solutions or teach or challenge when somebody is in an anxious or depressed state. This could be due to unfamiliarity with emotions, a feeling of responsibility for those emotions, or the emotions potentially leading to actual destructive behavior. Maybe you're actually afraid that this person could hurt themselves or someone else. But either way, this leads to an ineffective tactic to make the emotion go away as soon as possible. Sometimes it works to shut someone down, wherein they stuff the emotion, which will have to come out later anyway. But often... It just makes it worse in the moment. Rarely does receiving a logical response when feeling strong emotions help those emotions move through.